the clinic of the future is really thinking about, you know, I'm from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. You know, how could I get people in Sheboygan, Wisconsin to not only use a clinic like this, appreciate, you know, the value of something like this. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. From the frozen tundra of Wisconsin to the desert of Arizona to the Eden that is Palo Alto to his current home in the greatest city on earth, Joel Dudley has followed his interests and instincts to become a pioneer in the thoughtful application of data science to biology and medicine. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Chaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa, the thing I wanted to ask you about is, have we hit peak AI? (laughs) Uh, Yes, and here's why I know we have jumped the AI shark, because... There are now AI products that can help you select the best beer for your appetite based on AI or the best dog breed to have. The minute you're going into beer and dog breeds, I think you have definitely uh, hit peak. But as a VC, what's what's has your AI been able to determine what's next after AI? Because <laughs> I mean, it really does seem to be like the year of AI. What's coming next? I think next? we need to redefine it from artificial intelligence to actual intelligence. Ah, there we go. That's optimistic. Um, no, but do you, is it, is it going to be like blockchain again or what, what do you think is going to be? There's all sorts of interesting stuff going on in the uh, mind machine connection, you know, like how you control machines with your mind without the, uh, the user, where the user interface is you. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know how that plays out and over what, you know, incredible period of time, but I find that to be a very interesting thought. All right. Well, let me see. Nope, it didn't work. I was trying to to, to move things with my mind, and it didn't work. All right, so we are so pleased today to welcome Joel Dudley, leader of the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, to to the show. There is so much I'm excited to talk with you about, Joel, but I really wanted to start with your initiative, in part your new initiative, in part because I'm so intrigued by the idea. As you know, I wrote a piece in 2014 outlining a vision for what I called the Data Inhaling Clinic of the Future. My understanding is that now, a scant three years later, you're well on your way to actually implementing this. So, Joel, welcome to the show and tell us about this futuristic yet actually implemented clinic that you guys have developed. The super clinic. The super clinic. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk to you guys um, The and your audience. Um, so the, the, the clinic is um, you know, really born out of the, um, you know, sort of the idea that, uh, you know, so there's a lot of data science, I'm sure you guys know, and you've talked to folks, right, that are doing all, all kinds of AI data science, whatever you want to call it. In healthcare, and one thing that really, you know, started to, to get to me, or I really started to appreciate, was a was a big challenge to the field. Was that we're, we're, we were constantly taking the data exhaust from the clinical environment, right, and trying to do really amazing things with it, right? We're trying to squeeze water out of the the rock of the, you know, the electronic health records, which are are great, but they're you know designed for billing and uh, recording, you know, care transactions. They weren't designed to be these you know, amazing repositories of human, you know, phenotype information and, and things like that. So it sort of just got to me that, man, you know, we're doing some great stuff, but we are really just really hitting the limits of, of what we can sort of, uh, you know, precipitate out of the data exhaust that comes off the, the clinical environment when we try to do machine learning. So then I thought, well, what the heck, why aren't we, you know, um, changing that? So how can we change that? Which is, to, you know, should, should data science people like myself and others, or at least we think about, data-driven approaches to medicine, why aren't we also redesigning 
the clinics, you know, to be sort of a data science or, uh, you know, data-driven medicine first sort of a design. Um, so that's really what, what instigated it. And then, uh, you know, Mount Sinai has just been amazing in supporting you know, this idea that we could uh, reimagine, you know, the clinic um, sort of ground up from a, a data-driven perspective. So what does it look like, the data-driven clinic? Does it look... Of the future. Of the future. Yeah. Does, it look, yeah, does it look of the future? Does it look like... And is there an orgasmic A lab with white walls and guys in white coats? Yeah. Or does it look like something a patient would actually want to step into? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, you know. So um, one thing that we were pretty adamant about from the beginning is we didn't want to design the clinic of the future for people like me. Meaning, I have no problem. This is so important. Yeah, I, I have no problem. You know, so we don't want to design a clinic for people who you know can write R with one hand and Python with another. And I have no problem jamming all kinds of devices under my skin and taking all kinds of blood measurements on myself, right? You know, because I'm kind of a freak that way. But the, you know, we're, we're 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 not designing clinics for people like me. I've got a. I'm looking at a USB brick right now that has 80 USB ports in it, and I've got about 30 wearables charging right now. You know, so this is not, this is not the, the, you know, the average person, right? So You at least recognize that's not normal, yeah, which, is, not which normal. is a good start. That's a lot of freaking steps, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the DSM uh, you know, will be updated at some point for, for, uh, to give a name to what we've got going on here. But um, the, uh, <laughs> so we really appreciate it from the ground up that we wouldn't, you know, we want to bring you know, the, pop, the broader population with us and help people appreciate, you know, um, and, and also set an expectation of what future medicine should be like so that, um, you know, patients themselves are also saying, hey, this is the way medicine should work. Why don't my other, why doesn't my other clinic work this way? So we actually worked uh, from the beginning with a, a design firm uh, called uh, Cactus, who had actually worked, you know, on uh, South by Southwest booths. They had worked on, uh, I think, Beyonce, one of Beyonce's concerts, you know, and creating digital experiences <laughs> around that. So, um and uh, so they were actually with us from the beginning on how do we design this whole physical user experience so that it's, you know, it's warm, it's welcoming. It, it, it makes people feel like it's the future, but it doesn't also feel like the, uh, you know, the room in Westworld where all the robots get repaired. Dystopian future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you have patients involved in that process? Because that's one of the, the thing that I find uh, often gets left out is, is having the actual who? patients. Oh, the patients, off, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Off the street, come in and... and participate in the design process. Yeah, so what? So how we designed the, the clinic, we're at, so the first in, incarnation of our clinic, and I just want to paint the broader vision, uh, you know, one futuristic clinic at Mount Sinai is not that interesting, to be honest. You know, that's not the future. It's, you know, the brick-and-mortar clinic at, at Mount Sinai. It's, we, what we realized is, you know, the future clinic is really physical spaces that are, um, or physical clinics that are backed by or connected to sort of a global brain, right, and artificial intelligence clinical decision support system that's, you know, inhaling information, that's um, providing, you know, useful information back to the patients, whether they're in the clinic or out of the clinic, uh, to the physicians, et cetera. But we also knew that the physical spaces were still important. So we actually, the first version of our clinic is called a pop-up precision medicine clinic, um, meaning that... Uh, this is so interesting. It's actually designed from the ground up to be modular, and, uh, we, and, we can, and we can fabricate it, actually, in a bunch of different ways. So the, the whole design is totally flexible, and it's important for one, a couple of different reasons. One, we can easily scale it from like a, a kiosk size thing, or we could install one at South by Southwest. We could install one at Goldman Sachs. Uh, but the other key thing is it's um, easy to swap out the modules, right? So um, I always tell people that we're building the clinic of 2025, 
And then I very quickly follow that up saying, I actually don't know what the clinic of 2025 looks like. We have our best guess at what the elements of it are, and we are building a clinical environment that lets us see real patients and get feedback and iterate as fast as we can and swap out things that work. So one of the things I thought that was so interesting is, is you've contrasted your approach with what you've called the smash and grab approach of yeah. places like Health Nucleus, yeah. where the goal seems to just be to grab as much data as possible versus longitudinal patient care. Mm-hmm. What sort of things do you have in place to um, keep folks engaged over time? Where to, you know, that, which really has been a challenge because, as you point out, most people are not Mike Snyder. They don't want to wear 10,000 wearables. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have all their life monitored, as, as you've acknowledged. Mm-hmm. How have you um, – what have you done to be dis- – that, that it makes you distinct from these smash-and-grab operations that you've described? Yeah. So we're, uh, you know, so we're definitely into the omics. You know, we, we, are, we, you know, we are building in the ability to pull in proteomics, metabolomics, all the microbiome, uh, in, ad- in, in addition to all our kinds of cool – um, clinical modalities, but really uh, w- one of the guiding principles that we have I- in building our clinic is it's the relationship stupid. It's all about building a relationship with, uh, you know, w- with patients and helping patients build better relationships with their providers and, and understanding that if we're really going to get the longitudinal data that we need to, um, um, you know, to, you know, uh, build the new types of models that we need to predict health better, et cetera, that we need to build a system that gives patients immediate and continuous, um, you know, real value in terms of informing their health. And, you know, I actually, you know, I wrote one of the first books uh, called Exploring Personal Genomics on analyzing the genome sequence. And I, and, you know, as much as I love genomics, uh, short of short of pharmacogenomics, there isn't a lot of real near-term, you know, value that a patient gets, right, in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, guiding their uh, their day to day well being, or watching out for some of the uh, you know the key things that affect everybody, such as cardiovascular disease risk or diabetes, et cetera. Right. So, I think one of the unintuitive things that we built into the clinic is a lot of traditional measures that just aren't actually captured on a regular basis or, or well validated measures. So, I'll give like you what? Like what? Like yeah, a concrete example would be um, um, it really disturbs me that, uh, you know, cognitive and neural, neurological function is not captured as a regular part of the medical record. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an early sign of, of, of so many, I mean, not neurodegenerative disease is one thing, but we know, you know, cognitive deficits appear with vitamin deficiencies, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, diabetes, with cardiovascular disease, right, as, as uh, if the, the, the vascularization, I mean, so the vascular function of the, of the brain starts to, to alter with age, et cetera. So, um, we actually have a, as one of the stations, if you will. So the, the physical space is really sort of built around a single patient, actually, and there's sort of like various stations, and it's all sort of a single patient-centric environment. The first version of it, and then we actually have this big, almost like um, Microsoft Surface-like table, and it looks like you sit down for about 15 minutes and you play what it feels like a game, and what you don't know is that at the back, on the back end of that game, it's mapping all of your responses to what's called the NIH toolbox. The NIH toolbox is a well-validated set of instruments for essentially encoding, um, you know, cognitive phenotypes and neurological phenotypes, you know, and that just, you know, it plops right in their record, right? And it's, um, it's almost something they can do while they're waiting, you know, for the next station or a waiting room type thing. It's just one simple example. It's something that's, there are thousands of public, you know, publications on the utility of these scales and these measures, 
Um, we know how they relate to lots of other different diseases, but it's something that's just not captured on a regular basis and is easily captured with digital you know, tools today. So one of the problems I, I keep having with all of this kinds of stuff, mm. not that it's not cool and, and informative, um, is that mm. you can spend you know, all the money in the world and do all the research in the world to find the coolest technology in the world mm. you know, to, to determine that the grass is green. <laughs> yeah. And like you could just look at the grass and say, hey, I know it's green. And so much of the same thing you know, with, with some of the chronic illnesses and the patients is like you could do all the data collection and all the you know, whatever that you've described mm-hmm. And the answer for them is still going to be take your damn medication and stop eating that. You know, it's going to be much simpler um, <laughs> from a chronic illness, high-risk patient yeah. standpoint than the data would require. Yeah. You know, is this is this like the world's most expensive hammer or is this really important? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a common, a common question we get. Um, I, I think there's a, you know, there's a couple major unanswered questions that we hope to be able to answer with a, a clinic like this and the ability to to collect, uh, you know, data in this way is one, which I'm obsessed with to, to this day, is nobody actually knows what normal is, right? We have no idea. When, when we read in a paper that it says, you know, a, a cohort of normal healthy people, that's actually uh, yeah, you know, no kidding. Uh, quite a hand-wavy statement. We don't know what a normal healthy person uh, looks like. Um, you know, I've got a great, this is an anecdote, and I, I don't like to use anecdotes, but here's... Uh, an anecdote of an individual I worked with who has um, is a meticulous record keeper and has gotten their blood tested, you know, on a regular basis uh, for the last like 30 years or something ridiculous. The in- the individual has had 200 a cholesterol of 200 since about the age of 30 and is in mid 50s now and still has a cholesterol of 200. Cholesterol is the magic, you know, uh, cholesterol the 200. Uh, uh, you know, milligrams per a deciliter or whatever it is, is is a magic number, right? In evidence-based mm-hmm. medicine, you've got to start thinking about, especially once you get into age of 50, you've got to start thinking about statins, et cetera. But, you know, from a longitudinal perspective, and if we start thinking of using this individual as their own, um, you know, reference, um, they have had unbelievably rock-steady cholesterol their entire lives. 200 might be their normal. Now, I know I'm probably raising the hair on the back of a lot of uh, cardiovascular folks when I say that, uh, and I can say in the case of this particular individual, we did, uh, you know, some, some calcium uh, scoring, and, and, and they have the arteries of a 25-year-old. But you gave them the statins anyway? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions about, you know, what is normal, and then, you know, what is the value of using individuals as their own reference? Uh, might it be more informative in certain cases? I'm not going to say all cases, but in certain cases to use you know, individuals as their own reference. Is this kind of analogous to what your to project baseline to the, what Verily is doing? Exactly. But you can't. But, you know, how do you get the baseline of individuals and sustainability? Like your friend, yeah. like you said about your friend, you even I think you even said, uh, you know, ridiculous that he's been collecting his blood you yeah. know, levels for 30 years. I mean, yeah. nobody's going to submit to that, right? Nobody's going to be able well, to. Well, I think... Um, yeah, and, and again, the, why we designed our clinic, so we've designed our clinic in a way so that um, it facilitates, uh, we measure a lot of things that are really, are, are quite useful for um, uh, sort of basic primary care and health and wellness screening, where there's there's probably, a, there's a, a huge amount of, of, of actionable things that we actually, that we measure. And then we're, but we're also backloading that, I guess, by measuring lots of things we don't know the value of uh, in the in the short term. So, um you know, maybe an example would be uh, if a large employer signed up with us, you know, just, you know, a lot of insurance companies offer a uh, discount on the um, insurance premium, right? If, right? if a person gets their annual health and wellness, 
Well, there's no reason they couldn't go through a clinic just like this and cover all the bases they would need for their annual health and wellness uh, insurance discount. But at the same time, you know, we're building up this data set that would help us um, address some of these questions. While but is, it, is a clinic like this going to produce cost savings or increases in cost? Because it's going to find more things. The reason employers sign up with yeah. wellness programs yeah. ostensibly is to save money. I mean, it doesn't work that way, but that's the theory behind it. And, yeah. and you know, and there's no employer in the United States today that's looking to spend more money on healthcare. So are they willing to support the kind of level of intensity yeah. that you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I'll set aside the incidental findings sort of issue uh, for a second, just because that gets uh, it's something we're very aware of. You know, the more things you measure, I think Zach Kahani was a guest on your, uh, your podcast and uh, he's, written a lot about the incidental loan and other things. So we put a lot of clear quantitative thinking behind what we're measuring and issues around, you know, measuring things that, you know, too much and incidental finding probabilities and things like that. But um, I'm really interested in the cost thing. I think one of the reasons I'm so excited to be doing this at Mount Sinai is, and and people listening might not know where Mount Sinai is. It's on the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan, it's actually sitting on, on the, the dividing line, if you will, between some of the richest and poorest zip codes in the United States. Right? So we have, a massive, we have a massive Medicare population. We take care of some of the wealthiest people in the country and some of the poorest people in the country. Right? So, um, and we're simultaneously trying to figure out how does this clinic of the future serve both those populations right? and how do we use information. And that gets into, you know, how... You know, what, what you charge for something like this. So, sir, we, we can think of the uh, health nucleus version of this service that goes in here and you charge thousands, or the forward version of this or whatever, we charge thousands of dollars. Um, but I think there are other interesting ways, uh, you know, to, to create business models around this type of, of health screening clinic. One would be, um, you know, on the pharma side, right, we have... Um, you know, genetics, right, and, and, and looking at genetics of natural populations and, and is a huge, you know, Regeneron and, and others are sort of, you know, using this type of real-world data to find uh, drug targets. If you understand, you know, the value of a, you know, a certain bundle of data, um, it, it could be that you can create business models where you actually give these services away for free, right, and start offering it to people. Right, and, and the value is, is in the yeah. data collection. It's in the so data collection. what we want to do is um, to take a, now um, address sort of uh, aspects of your, your journey, which is so interesting. I know that um, we should really start with the frozen tundra. <laughs> Lambeau Field holds slightly less people than the entire population of Green Bay, and at game time, it is never empty. The football is a way of life here. But just how big are the Packers in Wisconsin? How big are the Packers in Wisconsin? They, the Packers are the de facto, you know, number one uh, religion of Wisconsin, right? <laughs> They're the spirit animal of Wisconsin, for God's sake. I used to joke that, uh, and this is a bit of a uh, maybe a dark humor joke, but you know, a, a train, you know, a plane could crash at Milwaukee Airport, then hundreds of people would die, but that would be second. Uh, you know, second page news to a uh, off season trade that the Packers made. You know, it's just it's it's. Uh, no, it's a religion up there. <laughs> it's a religion, but you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I was just back there and I did a tour of Lambeau Field and I, and I love football, so at risk of talking about it too much. You know, I remind people it's the only football uh, team in in the United States that doesn't have an owner that's owned by the people, right? So that I, there's some. It's just not about the fact that we want our team to win. It's the only community owned NFL team left in the world. 
And, and if uh, you must know, my husband's from Wisconsin, and we have oh. a, a guy with a cheese head on at the top of our Christmas tree every year because that's well, where it belongs. That is pretty <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. So I understand that um, your dad was a factory worker at a manufacturing plant, and yeah. you grew up with a sort of dual personality. On the one hand, you were kind of a super jock yes. playing football and uh, wrestling at a super high level. Yeah. On the other hand, you loved tinkering with computers, teaching yourself yeah. programming when you were seven and playing a lot of Dungeons and & Dragons. And you also told me you got in your share a fair, a fair share of your trouble in high school, yes. um, and you wound up attending University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. Yeah. <laughs> but after a couple of years, you transferred to ASU, Arizona State. Was it mostly the weather? Yeah, ASU was, uh, yeah, the weather, really. I was sick of freezing, and, and you know, my last year in Wisconsin, we had uh, negative eighty wind chill, uh, and uh, I started actually. My goodness, that sounds. Cool. Well, I actually started suffocating in the open air because your lungs are like, I'm not breathing this. So, and then I was like, you know, I think it's time to uh, to, to look for some warmer weather. And I had family in Arizona. Yeah. So then you went to ASU. You studied microbiology and did IT consulting in your spare time. And after graduating, you went to work at a startup. But uh, you missed biology. So as I understand it, you took classes and eventually hooked up with a comparative genetics professor. You did a lot of programming, made key contributions on high-profile papers. Um, but then ultimately, you wound up in California. Could you talk about that? Weather. <laughs> no, no, he was in Arizona. Arizona's pretty good too weather. Too hot. It's too hot. Yeah. No, California was, uh, um, I had, uh, I was doing, uh, you know, work in, in evolution and comparative genomics and, um, and it was going well, but I really missed actually the, you know, the health applications of, uh, of, uh, bioinformatics and genomics. And, um, there was a, a physician available at a, at a lab at, at Stanford and, um, I, uh, on a whim, uh, applied for it and, uh, which was, you know, Stanford was one of my, you know, my dream places to work, live near or whatever. I just wanted to be there and, uh, um, ended up working and being one of the, I think first or second ever employees of, uh, a tool butte who's now, uh, I think a pretty famous guy and maybe yeah, a big mocker. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, but, but you were picked out of 150 people who applied in part because of your background in, in programming and in comparative, um, genetics. And you, um, you sort of worked essentially as a research yeah. scientist, you told me, um, making, you know, sort of what a research scientist, you know, sort of made at the time, like, you know, around 110, something like yeah. that a year. Um, but then a tool convinced you to, they were to apply for a PhD program. And then you got into the program at Stanford. Yeah. Um, but then there was sort of the, uh, uh, salary discrepancy. What did you, could you tell us about that? Oh yeah. So, uh, a tool is, uh, you know, one of the most amazingly, uh, su- supportive guys. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I transitioned to being, I was doing PhD level work and, and a tool said, come on, you got to do it. You got to, you got to finish it. it was totally supportive. And, uh, um, I got in the program and the problem was I had actually had my first son was born in Arizona and I, you know, I was a, and my wife w- was staying home. So I had a young, young kid at home and, and, uh, a student salary, even in the Bay area at that time was, was, uh, nothing to, uh, uh, you know, really support even a single person. It was like, like 40 or something. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Like $40,000 a year. And so, uh, Which is a, less a tool, than 110. A tool is just an amazingly supportive guy. And he figured out, you know, how he could pay me essentially as a sort of staff scientist programmer as a student. And, and being the maverick that he was, he uh, looked in the student handbook and he hired me as a research assistant. And uh, what he noticed was, even though we're, we were only allowed to, I think, work eight hours a week as a, as a student, there was actually no um, uh, hourly rate limit on that eight hours because no professor in their right mind, all the professors want to pay people nothing, right? So, so they didn't need to to write in an hourly rate limit. So I ended up making like, 
I don't know, $1,000 an hour or something as a research. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's and, uh, very cool and, by a tool. So cool. And was told that I was going to be the first and last person ever to get that deal. So <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So I thought that was such a, such a great story. And you wound up completing your PhD. You, you spent a year at a, at a, at a spin out, uh, Stanford spin out. And then you were invited by Eric Schatt, to, um, uh, who is um, CS, who, who I've known for, for a while, who is CSO of uh, PacBio, um, but then he had just been recruited to lead this huge effort at Sinai, and then he, he, he really wanted you to join this team at, at Mount Sinai, and you had never been to New York before, so can you describe the experience yeah. of what happened your first night in New York? Yeah, never had never set foot in New York before, um, and had no interest in, in going to New York. Uh, you know, I love loved California, uh, so I, I arrived... Uh, you know, for to, for to interview with folks the next day, and uh, the the funny thing that that stuck out right away was I was really hungry and I was on California time, and I was able to uh, uh, from my hotel room order a steak and an omelet at like one in the morning, and it and it showed up in my hotel room in like ten minutes, <laughs> and I was like, well, what's going on here? This is amazing. You know, what's a <laughs> you know, this is a whole it opened up a whole new world of possibilities for me, and and then uh, New York uh, had a great first impression on me there. Um, uh, but really the, you know, the thing that got me to New York wasn't the, the 24 hour, uh, you know, stakes. It was the, uh, um, had met with the, the Dean, uh, Dennis Charney and CEO of, of Mount Sinai. And they said to me, we want you to treat this, uh, you know, four or 5 million patient health system as your own personal data lab. And I thought, holy crap, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, if, if they mean it, that's, that's unbelievable. That's a once in a lifetime, you know, opportunity. So what is the biggest contrast between working at your dream job at Stanford and working in that job at, at Mount Sinai? What what is the, you know, what is the biggest cultural shift from moving from one to the other? Yeah, well, man, there's a huge number of, of cultural shifts and uh, besides the steak and eggs. <laughs> yeah, the steak and eggs, but uh I think the the one uh thing that I really appreciate about uh Mount Sinai is their Mount Sinai is very tightly integrated. You know, the health system in the medical school where I work are very tightly integrated. Mount Sinai has become, you know, the largest health system in the state of New York. And uh, they're very risk tolerant, actually. So, you know, we associate um, Mm -hmm. a place like Stanford. And, you know, I always thought Stanford would be my dream to be a professor there. Uh, But, you know, the, the issues with the Harvards and the Stanfords, you know, is that they have these amazing brands, right? These 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 great brands, and then uh, and the Mayo would be another one, right? And when your brand is so valuable, then you know you you actually have a different risk profile, right? That was because so interesting. <laughs> that that brand. You were describing how the hospital is different from the research at places yeah. like Stanford, and that's related to the risk yeah. aversion. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's and and I think uh, there's a bit of a survival sort of thing on the uh, on the side of the hospital, right? We just know that how tough it is to. to you know, we have a massive Medicare population at Mount Sinai, and it's just right. unbelievable. Right. Well, I think part of the part of the cultural difference, I think, is the diversity of the population you're yeah. engaged with. I mean, at Mount Sinai, yeah. you could not have a much more diverse population, whereas at Stanford, you could have tall white people and short white people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the one of the funniest things that that happened to us at Stanford was, uh, which was sort of a reminder of what what a bubble we were in, was we had a, done a drug repurposing study, and we repurposed this particular. Uh, antipsychotic uh, medication for small cell lung cancer. So small cell lung cancer is actually almost, you know, I think largely caused by smoking. And we wanted to run a small study in Stanford. And we actually couldn't find really a single person with small cell lung cancer in the area because nobody smokes there anymore. 
right? So it was just sort of, it was kind of funny, you know, there was... <laughs> not cigarettes well, yeah, anyway. Cigarette, not cigarettes <laughs> anyway, but there was like no smokers, you know, it was just a sort of a reminder of like, wow, we really are living in a in a different area. But but I also, would em- I also think it emphasizes the difference between how hospitals approach care and that the degree of you know what you would you would sort of emphasize was the difference between sort of Stanford researchers, mm. um, you know, who are incredibly innovative and really trying to push things in one way, and in the Stanford sort of hospitals where it's just a different approach to risk. I wanted to, as we're running out of time here, um, I wanted to get to one other topic, which is I know that you were diagnosed with Crohn's yep. disease at the age of yep. thirty. Um, how has this experience with the disease impacted both your research and how you've approached life? Yeah, the, the, you know. Um I guess maybe I have the perspective that a lot of people have you know, with a chronic disease that it's it's largely a blessing in a lot of ways, right? Because in terms of it helps you see things you wouldn't have seen otherwise. On the research side, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in um, sort of uh, you know aspects of precision medicine in terms of redefining diseases. We, we do a lot of work in, in figuring out, you know, how does Alzheimer's relate to diabetes or relate to psoriasis and we all these diseases that we thought were once different. Uh, when we look at the molecular level, we realize that actually they're all sort of connected on this fabric, you know, and the boundaries we draw around them are really arbitrary. So a concrete example of that in, in Crohn's disease, you know, is I, I get uh, one of the side effects of Crohn's disease is you get these cutaneous manifestations. So you get these rashes all over your body right before you have a, a flare. And I talked to, you know, world-leading uh, gastroenterologists about uh, these cutaneous manifestations of Crohn's. And I say, well, don't you, get, don't you guys think this is interesting? How could we study, you know, these, these skin manifestations and try to connect them to what's going on in the gut? And, and everybody's like, uh, no, you should go to the dermatologist and get steroids and it goes away, and then we could get back to treating your Crohn's. You talk to the dermatologist, wow, okay. and they say, well, you know, I went to become a dermatologist, so I did not have to think about the colon. So, you know, please put on these steroids and go back to your gastroenterologist. <laughs> So no one had an integrated view, and that's sort of what you're trying to provide. Exactly. So that's strongly motivated us to actually map out specifically what are these networks, what are these uh, you know molecular drivers that connect these diseases, and say, here, guys, look, you know, your worlds are connected. So uh, you know, you've got also this world connection between the Midwest, the West Coast, the East Coast. Uh, does that also play into how you think about the clinic of the future? Yeah, you know, I was. Uh, <laughs> it definitely does. You know, I have. Uh, I was recently at a, I won't name, but I was, I was at a dinner with a very prominent venture capital firm, and uh, where there's a lot of founders with uh, very prominent, well-funded uh, biotech companies, and it was sort of a dinner around AI in healthcare. And there was a sort of conversation going back and forth about, uh, you know, the how do we, you know, how do we address these issues of the people in the flyover states, or the flyover states people don't don't understand this, the flyover you know state people don't get this. So how are we gonna and I was just sitting there, and I spoke up at one point, and I'm like, man, as someone who grew up from Wisconsin, I am just honored to be sitting here with you people, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, and look, I even have an Apple Watch, you know, it's like, can you believe yeah. that? Holy! <laughs> you know, and it was just, and then, you know, they all kind of felt ashamed, you know, at one point, you know, and... Uh, but only for a second. <laughs> only for a second, yeah. But a lot of that... It has dictated how we uh, are designing our sort, you know, sort of called clinic of the future. Is really thinking about, you know, if I set one up and if I'm from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, you know, how could I get people in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, to to not only you know use a clinic like this, appreciate you know the value of something like this, and want to and, and you know raise their expectations. You'll have now. to integrate cheese curds into the opening game, the cognitive cognitive cheese, cheese curds. curds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, wow, this has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed listening to you and learning about what you're doing. Yeah, Joel, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the, uh, the program today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great. That was really, that was great stuff, wasn't it, Lisa? Well, it is. And I think that whole, you know, that last discussion, the very last one about the, the flyover states is so so important to think about. You know, we have had this whole discussion in the country about, you know, the hillbilly elegy and this and that and people not understanding the electorate. And, but, you know, from a medical standpoint, we don't think about the Midwest and the South the same way we do Boston and San Francisco and New York. And I think... You know, if you look at AI and where data comes from and studies come from, if you don't integrate the whole country, the AI is crap. You know, you really got to build a much more thoughtful, inclusive model. And I think it sort of speaks, you know, in many of others, as we've talked about diversity on many levels. We talk about gender diversity. In a recent show with uh, Jeff Reed, we talked about um, uh, diversity of sexual orientation. And here, to, to, to continue our virtue signaling. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I think I think the idea of um, uh, of, of geographic diversity is, is a huge issue, particularly um, on the coast where, you know, so many of the, of the VCs, so much... Are sort of concentrated, um, and I, on the other hand, that's what makes it so exciting. What J.D. Vance, author of *Hillbilly Elegy*, is actually doing with Steve Case, right? I mean, he's going around the country, essentially looking for innovation and to serve communities that have been traditionally underrepresented in um, investor portfolios. Yep, absolutely true. Um, the valuations are better out there, by the way, folks. Uh, so. Great show. Join us next time when our guest will be Rachel Francine, founder and CEO of SingFit in Los Angeles. Uh, We love LA. And also, we love it when you rate us, judge us, and tell us that we're worthy. Uh, You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in beautiful, scenic, Mill Valley, coastal California. Take care. Bye-bye.